You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Today we're uh, kicking off a, a new message series, a four-part series called The Financial Squeeze. I think we've all uh, experienced the financial squeeze. Sometimes it occurs whenever the unexpected happens. You know, there's a, a medical bill that we hadn't planned for, maybe expensive car repair or the fridge stops working. Sometimes we can see the financial squeeze coming. I remember uh, from my wife and I, uh, just before our two kids entered into college, we knew we were entering into a financial squeeze moment as we tried to help them uh, get their education, uh, get through college. Sometimes uh, things happen in our economy that puts us all in a squeeze, and that's kind of what's happening right now. We're all feeling the squeeze of inflation, and what was thought originally to be kind of some temporary price increases because of supply chain issues is now turning out to be a longer-term problem, and it's squeezing pretty much everybody. Now, whenever we're in the grip of a financial squeeze, we tend to look for two things. We look for advice to help us navigate the squeeze, and then we look for help to get through it and get out of the squeeze. Now, where do we look for these two items, advice and help? In our culture, We tend to look to the experts for advice, and we tend to look to the government for help. Now, the experts, first of all, is what most people are getting their advice from now. Now, it's it's really not clear who the experts are. Oftentimes, they're not even named. Uh, No one really knows what you have to do to earn the title expert, but there's a group of experts that have all kinds of advice, and not all of it's bad. Some of it's really helpful. I noticed this article in the New York Times online edition, uh, July 25 of this year. It was about the financial challenges and the emotional impact of it. And the subtitle, you know, this kind of subtitle always catches your attention, at least it catches mine. You know, the experts share tips. Like, well, I want to know more. I'm feeling a little squeezed. I'd like to know more. So that catches our eye. What are the tips? In this particular article, New York Times, these, they gave three tips. Tip number one is this. Embrace Self-reflection and communicate with empathy. I, I, I think that's a good idea. I, I'm not sure exactly how that helps with my budget challenges, but, you know, that's a good idea. Second one was spend wisely, but don't deprive yourself. When I read that, I thought, okay, these are people who have not ever felt a financial squeeze. Because if you're really in a financial squeeze, which is it? Do I spend wisely or do I not deprive myself? That's a challenge. My favorite one was tip number three, explore different types of professional help. (laughs) It's like, really? So this is an article on advice from the experts telling me to explore getting advice. It's just a cyclical thing. And I, I have to be honest, there's some things that I've read that have been helpful from experts, but oftentimes I find myself disappointed in these kind of articles. And the idea that I am becoming pretty convinced about is if we look only to the experts for advice, especially in challenges like this, we are doomed. We don't have a chance. Now, if you are in a financial squeeze, what you want even more than advice is real tangible help. And of course, the most tangible help you can get in a financial squeeze is money. If you could get more money, then the pressure would subside. So who do we look to to give us money in a financial squeeze? We all know the answer, because we've been well-trained. The government. We even have a term for it. <clears throat> it's a government bailout. 
You know, historically, and, and this may be hard for us to understand because this is all we've known, but historically, governments have almost never bailed out their citizens from a financial squeeze. But all of that changed during a, a particular horrible moment in our history, the Great Depression. For our nation, it shifted. In the 1930s, with the Great Depression and the tremendous squeeze and problems that were occurring, the Congress and the President at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, passed what was called the New Deal. And this is one of those titles that Congress gave the bill that actually reflects what it was. It really was a completely new deal between the government and its citizens in relationship to finances. Before the New Deal, in our nation, it was largely the, the churches and Christian organizations that would help people who were really caught in a financial squeeze. But this New Deal brought about two major shifts in our, in our country. The first shift is this. Personal finances became a shared responsibility between the, the person and the government. From this point on, individuals began looking more and more and more to the government to relieve the financial squeeze. The most recent example, of course, is the student loan forgiveness plan. Now, after the New Deal, which really helped a lot of people, and I'm not saying it shouldn't have been done, I'm just saying this is the impact of that, and it, it marked a major shift in this area of our life. After the New Deal, it was only a matter of time before businesses, companies, corporations decided to try to get in on the shared responsibility plan. It really didn't happen until 1970 when businesses began to get in on the action. In May of that year, 1970, uh, the Penn Central Railroad appealed to the government for a bailout on the grounds that they provided transportation that was vital to the defense of the nation. The government refused to back their loans. They refused to bail them out. And that began about a two- to three-year process in which the railroad filed for bankruptcy, reorganization, and the government eventually bailed them out. The name of that railroad now is Amtrak. That's how we got Amtrak. That was the first government bailout in the 1970s, early 1970. And over the next 37 years, there was only six more corporate bailouts. The total of those bailouts was $338 billion. That's in today's dollars. That's inflation-adjusted. Well, a few weeks ago, inflation-adjusted. So $338 billion. Six bailouts over 37 years. Then, this, this is a little history, then 2008 came. The Great Recession, not the Great Depression, the Great Recession. In that one year alone, the government granted seven corporate bailouts, totaling $1,370,000,000,000 in just that one year. So it took 37 years to get to that bar. In the one year, it went there. Can you see the trend? Now, we don't even have enough screen space or really roof space to talk about the amount of money that was spent during COVID, you know, $5 trillion plus in bailout efforts. So what is clear, whatever political preference you have, it almost doesn't matter. This is the trend. This is the trend. 
We are now in a situation in our culture where personal finances are a shared responsibility between us and our government. And that brings about a second shift that's occurred. Help has now become depersonalized. Financial help has become depersonalized. And the reason is not because of any ill intent. It's just a numbers reality. When a church or a neighbor or a friend helps someone out in financial need, they know who that person is. They know their name. They probably have a good idea of why that person is in financial need and therefore can probably give wisely to really help that person get through this tough spot and get back on their feet. The help is personal. But a government can't do that. It's too big, and there's too many people. So people are turned into numbers. And the help is given in kind of a one-size-fits-all approach that often misses the complexity and the nature of the individual financial squeeze or need. Now, again, I'm not saying, this may sound like a civics lesson, but I'm not saying that the government shouldn't do anything to help its citizens. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have cast your stimulus checks. I cast mine. They're going to send me checks, I'm going to cash them. What I am saying <coughs> is this. As the government spends more and more and more to bail us out of every financial squeeze, what is occurring is we are trained to look to it and not to God whenever we face a financial squeeze. So just like we are now, the reason the experts are so popular is because the Bible is no longer viewed to be an expert in anything. So we don't turn to the Bible for advice. We turn to experts. And we don't turn to God. We turn to the government. So in this series, I want to change that shift. And I want to look at what the Bible says by way of advice and what God's offer is for help in the middle of a financial squeeze. Because as a nation, and maybe even as people who are part of this church, we may not know or have forgotten. So what is God's economic bailout plan? Well, the word bail means to carry. You know, you bail water out of a boat when you use a bucket to carry water out of the boat and dump it back in the body of water. You bail someone out of jail when you carry money to the courthouse or to the bail bonds person and they get freed. You bail out a person or a corporation when you carry money to help them. Now, God was in the bailout business long before our government started bailouts in the 1930s. Here's one summary statement of God's offer to help us in our need. Isaiah 46, verse 4 says this, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. Who's that? I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. God says, I made you. Why does he point to that one thing? God's done all kinds of things, but why point to this one thing? It's because we had nothing to do with our existence. We didn't make any decisions. We're not self-made individuals. And just like our birth, over the course of our life, we're going to find ourselves in situations that we had nothing to do with and we have no power over. And God says it's in those moments, just like the moment when you were born. I didn't 
I didn't see to the miracle of your life and then just walk away from you. It's in those moments that God offers to carry us, to help us, to bail us out. So how does he do that exactly? Does a big hand, the hand of God, descend from heaven and personally write us a check out of his own account? No, God works behind the scenes to arrange the circumstances that brings relief and to send people who can really help us in our time of need. But, like with any bailout, there are conditions. And in this series, we are going to be looking at four of the conditions that are attached to God's offer to help. Think of it this way. God says, I will help you if you work on these things. So we'll let God tend to how and when he's going to help us, and we'll work on the four things that call and invite him to help us. Today, we're going to look at the first principle, which is carry my load. We are to carry our own load. Next week, we're going to talk about choosing contentment. The week after that, calm my emotions. And then finally, commit to generosity. But today, carry my load. This term, carry my load, this condition is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. This is what it says. For each one should carry his own load. Just three verses earlier, God had said what sounds like the opposite. He says, carry each other's burdens. Same word, carry. But in one situation, we're to carry our own load, and the other one, we're to carry each other's burdens. So you, you read it, and you think, well, so which is it? Do we bail each other out, or do we tell everyone to buck up and carry their own load? Well, it depends on the circumstances. The words burden and load describe very different circumstances. The New Testament is written in the Greek language, and there's some words that the Greek defines more precisely than we do in English. When you say burden or load in English, kind of have similar, almost the same idea. But in the Greek language that these words are translated from, everyone knew that they meant something describing different situations. In the Greek language, a burden is, is what happens when a calamity or trouble comes down on you, kind of like an avalanche. And you're upended and you're buried. And you can dig all you want. But if someone doesn't come find you and help you and dig towards you, you're probably not going to be able to dig yourself out of this. You need help. That's why we are to carry each other's burdens. There are situations we all get in. We just need help. We can't do it ourselves. A load is different. A load is what you personally are responsible for. The Greek word that was used here is the same word that was used to describe the day pack that the soldiers of the day would carry. It contained the things that they were responsible for. It was their day pack. And the idea behind this is that God has given each of us a day pack. He's given each of us responsibilities. He's given each of us a daily amount of work to do. And he says, you need to do that. You need to pick up your day pack and carry your own load. He will not help us carry our load. He wants us to carry our own load. So the question is, where's the line between a load and a burden? Well, there's, there's more description given to this in the book of 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, is writing to a small church in the Greek city of Thessalonica. The times uh, were tough economically. 
at this moment. And in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul had written to some extent about the fact of Jesus' return, the fact that Jesus is going to come back and wrap up history, his second coming. And apparently, after that first letter, some people had decided to stop working and just wait for Jesus to return. Kind of God's ultimate bailout plan. You know, God's going to come, Jesus is going to return, wrap up history. He didn't say when, but I'm banking pretty soon so I don't have to work hard and solve this problem. So Paul writes the second letter to straighten some of these people out and say, no, because Jesus is returning doesn't mean you should set your day pack down and stop working. And in about three verses, we are given some pretty clear instruction on this word responsibility. And I, I want to identify for us this morning the, the two L's of responsibility. First, the responsibility link, and then secondly, the responsibility limit. This will help us as we navigate the financial squeeze. First, the responsibility link. There is a link between what we do in life and what happens in life, what we get in life. Why? It's because God has created us with the capacity to play a significant role in what he is doing in this world. And because of that, what we do or what we don't do is a big deal. It really matters. It really makes a difference in our life and in this world. You see, we were not created as some kind of pets by God to watch us go about our business for the purpose of entertainment. No, God created us as partner material. We actually have the capacity to partner with God. Now, he's the senior partner, no mistake about it, but we have the capacity to partner with God in what he wants done in this world. And what that means is our capacity is really quite remarkable. We are able to do a lot as human beings. I mean, you, you pull us together, we build planes. I don't, but humans do. We build planes. We construct skyscrapers. We build cars and streets and roads to travel on. We are capable of building space shuttles. Recently, my wife and I went to see the Endeavour space shuttle. We hadn't seen it yet. I've been wanting to see it for a while. If you ever get a chance, just go, and it's just amazing to walk around that thing. And you just get the idea of, of the human capacity. That thing's been in space 26 times. You can see the scoring as it re-enters on those tiles. It's amazing. And I'm, these are just a few examples of what we are capable of doing. And the question, when you look at our vast capacity, you have to ask, why can we do so much more than every other living thing? Did we just happen to find ourselves on the top of the evolutionary food chain? Well, no, that, that, that couldn't possibly explain logically the vast difference between what we can do and the next forms of life can do. We're not just one evolutionary rung above them in capacity. We're on a, a whole different level in what we can do. The only rational explanation that I've been able to find to explain our vast capacity abilities as humans 
is what the Bible says about the fact that we were made in the image of God. That means is who we are reflects some of who God is. We're made in his image. We are not God, but we are made in his image. We have minds that can think and dream. We have the ability to accomplish and create all kinds of things. The reason is because of how God made us. That's why we have this amazing capacity for accomplishment. And you can see it in little human beings as they begin to grow up. I remember the, the phase that my two went through when they get in that phase where they don't want any help with anything. Remember that? If you were parents, our two went through it when they were still learning how to talk. And so whenever you go to try to help them with something, they would start yelling loudly, myself, 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 which means back off. I got it. I can do this. And right off, I'm looking at them and say, there's no way you can do that. But you, you just let them, unless it's dangerous, you let them go for it. Because they are growing into their vast capacity. They know they can do more. They know they can do great things. And they don't want anyone to tell them that they can't. So you take longer for things to get done while they figure out how to do things. They have this sense, this nobility, wired, hardwired into them. And that's why they think they can do more than they really can. So the question you have to ask is what happens to so many people? What happens to that noble view of themselves? Why do so many people not rise to their potential? Well, there, there are many reasons, and it's complex. Some, well, there's just almost no other nice way to say it. They're just lazy. You know, it is hard work to reach your potential. And some decide it's just too much work. So they don't. A lot of people get discouraged. You know, life is hard. We all face setbacks. And sometimes people face enough of a setback, enough avalanches, where they decide, you know what? I'm done. They stop putting in the effort. Some fall down enough times, and they decide it's easier just to stay down. So the question, whatever the reason is, the question is, how do you get someone made in the image of God, created to be partner material with God, how do you get them to regain the nobility of their capacity? How do you get them back up on their feet? I've never heard the experts be real clear on how to do that. I mean, I've heard suggestions. You encourage them, put your arm around them, you tell them they can do it. Sometimes you try to guilt them, pressure them into doing it. And those and other methods, from my experience, are usually not effective. So God has a different method. God has embedded a nobility beacon in the body of every single person. And that beacon goes off when they stop working, and it calls them to pick up their day pack and get moving again. That nobility beacon is called hunger. Hunger. So in the book of 2 Thessalonians, this is what we read, verse 10. For even when we were with you, the Apostle Paul says, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Ooh, that sounds mean. Why wouldn't you feed someone who's hungry? Well, again, to be clear, this is not anyone who's hungry. 
This is the person who is hungry because they refuse to work. Now, if they can't work, then by all means, we feed them. But if they won't work, then we don't feed them. Well, why not? Again, that just sounds mean in our culture. Well, let's just play it out. What will happen if you don't feed them? If they can work and they won't, and you don't feed them, what will happen? They're going to get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And if they can work, then eventually just the biological power of their hunger will become greater than whatever the reason is that they've refused to work, and they will get back on their feet and they will start working so that they can eat. You see, we were created by God to partner with him and accomplish great things. And if we lose sight of our nobility, it is our hunger that will call us back to our potential and get us moving again. So the next time your stomach growls, it's your work reminder. Time to get back to work. I mean, maybe eat first, then get back to work. But what happens if someone feeds us at the point of refusal to work and hunger? Well, it just turns the beacon off. The beacon is turned off that calls us back to our nobility. And in the process, we are devalued. You see, to feed or to do for someone what they can and should do for themselves is to tell them they really don't count in life. It doesn't feel like that, but that's what it really says. What we are really saying to them is, you know what? You just sit there and do nothing. Or get up and do a bunch of stuff and work hard. Either way, it really doesn't matter. You'll be taken care of. Now, the... Those actions may feel compassionate if we feed someone who won't work. But what we are telling them is it really doesn't matter what they do because they don't really matter. Their contribution isn't really needed. They weren't really called to do anything amazing. And therefore, we'll just take care of them. We're telling them that they are insignificant in the flow of life. They already are wondering if they are, and now we confirm it. We're telling them that they are insignificant in the flow of life, and therefore, their lack of contribution is insignificant. And that's just not true. Now again, let me be clear. If they can't work, or if they're buried by an avalanche of hardships, then we rush in to help. But if they won't pick up their day pack, then we step back and we let hunger do its great work. About six years ago, a member here at this church who's an executive chef told me that he was sensing that God was leading him to start an organization to help address the challenges of hunger. And so we talked about these verses. I brought these verses up. I said, one of the big challenges you're going to have is trying to figure out how to apply this verse in our current context. And God led him to continue to start this organization. His name is Bill Bracken. Many of you know him. He started Bracken's Kitchen. And I have watched with amazement, Bill, lead that organization to help those who are crushed by the burdens, by the avalanches of life, and to work diligently not to help those who won't work. Now, it's complex because the government's involved, and it's complex, but I've been amazed to see how Bill and Bracken's Kitchen have done that. One of the programs that they offer is culinary training. 
to help people learn a trade, learn a skill, so that they can work and feed themselves. So I wanted to show you just a two-minute video of one individual who is in this program. Um, most people probably thought this individual wasn't capable of work, but by the time they were done, they had tremendous capacity. So let's take a look at this video, and then we'll look at the, the second point. What I come into in the morning is I, um, I got clock in first, and I also check the task list to see what, what I have available. And what I do is once I get, get the task list ready, um, I, have a, I, I find a cart, and you know, it's usually if I make dressings, I gather all the ingredients first for each one. And I get to my workstation, I help uh, prepare my area by um, getting the, like the pan, the mixer, the cutting board. Yeah, and I get prepared. When I first met Ethan, he was a little bit shy, so he wasn't very vocal. Now he's able to talk to coworkers, explain himself, and if he needs help, he asks for his help. So he's come a long way as, as well, you know. I've been with Bracken for almost two years, coaching with Ethan, and worked with Goodwill for six years as a job coach. He learns a lot by being mentored by the rest of the chefs or the workers, so he learns how to make a lot of the plates, and he is able to accomplish a lot of the plates on his own. Here at Brackens, he's learned how to focus, um, be independent on, on getting a lot of the ingredients. He's able to learn a lot of the steps, so now he's capable of doing it as well as performing any tasks that they ask of him when, when it's on the list. He doesn't question it, he just says, I can do it now. Well, Goodwill and partnership with Bracken's Kitchen actually makes them learn more of what they can do out there in the world and be independent on their own. Bill told me that um, Ethan, when he started the training, he wouldn't even talk. He said now to see him at the point where he'll talk on a video, which is scary stuff. So this is the kind of stuff that um, really calls human dignity forward. The second L is the responsibility limit. We do have the capacity to do tremendous things because we're made in the image of God. But our capacity does have a limit, and that's because we are not God. We are people made in his image. We are limited, therefore, by what other people made in his image decide to do in the area that we're working in. We are limited by circumstances that are beyond our control. And these limits will frustrate our efforts, will block our capacity. And one of the temptations in response to this challenge is we shift from being responsible to being irresponsible. So the Apostle Paul goes on to address this in the next two verses in 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 12. He says, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So whenever our great human capacity runs into the wall of opposition, we are tempted to respond in these two ways that Paul describes here. Some people, he says, become idle. The Greek word here literally means we stop structuring our days. It doesn't mean we stop moving. We lay in bed all day. It just means we stop planning and putting any structure to our days. And the reasons we plan is to add productivity, to accomplish more. You know, you don't just create a space shuttle in a day. It requires years and years of planning and teams of people. But if our plans are thwarted, we tend to get discouraged, and we stop trying. 
If you've had enough plans thwarted, your temptation is, you know what? I'm going to stop planning. The second temptation is we then become busybodies. Now, the word busy, the root word busy means to work. But to be a busybody is something different. To be a busybody means that the work you're doing is not on what you're responsible for. It's on what you're not responsible for, namely other people. That's a busybody. The work, primary work of a busybody is this. It's verbal. A busybody is always talking about what someone else did or should have done or is doing, and it leaves them little to no time left to do what they should be doing, what they're responsible for. The more we talk about what other people do, the more we tend to see ourselves as weak victims, victims of our circumstances, rather than the powerful agents that God created to solve problems and overcome obstacles. Now, this is what happens to me. I tend to become a busybody if I watch too much news or talk about politics for too long. What happens is I just get madder and madder about what other people are doing and should be doing. I mean, I didn't decide to flood the economy with $5 trillion and wonder why inflation is taking off. I didn't do that. I didn't start the war in Ukraine, which added to the problem. I didn't do any of these things. And so I just get mad. But when I'm angry at what other people are doing or should be doing, the problem is the shift focuses from what God created me to do. I was not created to be a victim with no power to do anything about my life. That's not me. That's not you. So what should I do? Paul says what you need to do is just settle down. That's just great advice. Just settle down. Okay? Calm down, everyone. I know you were wronged. I know you were blocked. I know this is all messed up. Just calm down and get back to what you can do. Stop focusing on what you have no control over. Get back within the limits of your responsibility and stop fixating about what you have no control over. The word responsible actually points to the limits of responsibility. The word has two parts, response and able. Responsibility simply means what you're able to do. You're able to respond. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to us, we can do something. We can't fix it all, but we can make a choice. We're not able to do everything because we're not responsible for everything. So when the squeeze comes, ask the question, okay, what can I do? And start doing that. The baseline action is, well, I can at least earn the food that I'm eating. I can pay for this sandwich. I can earn this. Start there. Let the homing beacon of hunger call you back to what you're responsible for and get back to carrying your own load. The challenge is we have to refuse the lie that if negative things happen to us, we're no longer responsible. That's just not true. It just means you're limited. So what can you do that will invite God to help you? Let me close by making three suggestions. Suggestion number one, excel in your field. Whatever it is you do for work, whatever your, your day job is, whether you're paid for it or not, whatever your responsibility is, excel in your field. Grow in what you do. Everybody wants to be paid more, but it is the rare person who's willing to develop the skills that demand more pay. So increase your capacity. Add to your education. Hone your skills. 
Second suggestion, expand your responsibility. So the first is your capacity. Expand that. The second is your responsibility. What more can you do? Maybe you can't do any more, but look at it. What more can you do? You know, this squeeze, just like any other bad thing that happens, the squeeze of inflation is not necessarily the enemy. God often uses the really hard things in life to be real turning points of opportunity for growth. This may be a moment in your life, in your career, when you really took more responsibility and you rose to your capacity and you expanded your responsibility. And this is a change for you, brought about by this opportunity. The last suggestion is endure your responsibility faithfully. The road to the future is paved by faithfulness, by doing your job, picking up your day pack every single day and doing it well. It may seem small, but it's you're building a bridge to the future. You might have a difficult job right now. You might have an awful boss, but God is in charge, and he is watching. If you want him to bail you out, don't bail on your responsibility. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that's, that's facing the squeeze. I know even people that have a lot of resources are having to make some different choices and decisions. But I pray particularly for those that are really, are really crunched right now. God, I ask that you would help them. You would carry them. And you would show them every single item that needs to go in their day pack everything that you want them to step into and do and bear responsibility for. And Father, as they are responsible, God, I pray that you'd bring help. And I pray for those around us that are in need. God, I pray you'd give us wisdom in how best to help them, whether we need to step back and allow hunger to do its work, pain to do its work, or whether we need to step in and, and help dig them out. We ask for wisdom on that. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.